everybody. Good to see you. Welcome to the Classic English Literature Podcast. Today, Episode 7, Worthy, Wise, and Belle, Marie de France's Lanval. Please like, subscribe to, share, and support the podcast. Follow me on all your Insta-Twit-Face social networks. Thanks ever so. When last we spoke, we looked at the rather honeyed version of King Arthur of history, especially in Geoffrey of Monmouth's Latin prose Historia Regum Britanniae, and Leomond's English poetic Brute. While the former presented itself as serious history, its claim was scoffed at even in the 12th century. Nonetheless, it continued to exercise enormous authority as a legitimate and legitimizing account of a Britain rooted in the peoples of northern France and inspired Leomond's narrative poem. At the end of that episode, I floated some loose questions about the role and motivations of Guinevere, or Guinevere, Arthur's wife and queen. She's central to the legendary histories, but very much as a support player. And I'm always curious to know more about characters who just tease us with a glimpse of their fullness. As a woman in an immoderately masculine culture, hints and conjecture are the best we can manage for someone like Guinevere. But in today's poem, L'Anval by Marie de France, the women are far and away the most fascinating and, I think, powerful players, for good and ill, as we shall see. Marie de France herself is something of a mystery. Clearly a well-educated Frenchwoman who wrote mainly in England, with some connection to the royal court, we've no reliable information as to our identity, but there are some tasty suggestions, maybe even the illegitimate half-sister to King Henry II, Ooh-la, and, as it were, la. She does her work in the later decades of the 12th century, a generation or so after Monmouth and Leomon. Her most famous work, The Lays, was probably dedicated to her brother, King, and exists in the same manuscript that contains the cuckoo song that we sang together around the campfire a couple of episodes ago. A lay, incidentally, is a short narrative poem, a romance, and usually written in octosyllabic couplets and often performed with a musical accompaniment. Usually, the subject matter derives from Celtic origins. Marie's are among the earliest extant examples of the type, and certainly among the best. She claims that she has transcribed old lays connected to Brittany, though no sources have made it down to us. She writes in the prologue, quote, I did not doubt, indeed I knew well, that those who first began them and sent them forth composed them in order to preserve adventures they had heard. Like some of the earlier texts, these lays live in the boundary between oral and literate cultures, and writing is seen as a technology for preservation. This implies, of course, that Breton tellers circulated these stories of Arthur well before Geoffrey of Monmouth put quill to parchment. Even earlier evidence of Arthur legends comes not in story and song, but in architecture. And not in northern France, but in Italy. The archivolt of Modena Cathedral's north entry, the Porta della Pescaria, 
contains pictorial carvings dating to the dawn of the 12th century with identified characters Artus de Britannia, Winlogi, Guinevere, and Galvigan, Galahad. I'll pop up a photo on the social media pages so you can have a look. I'm going to focus on just one of Marie's lays, the most famous one, the Lay of Sir Lanval. Here's the short and sweet. Once upon a time, it was a long time ago, a knight named Lanval lived in King Arthur's court. He was gentle and noble, courageous, and quite the handsome fella. But Arthur and the other knights neglected and even scorned him, for he was poor and foreign. Head hung low, he decides to ride into the forest by himself, perhaps for a good cry. Resting by a secluded stream, two damsels, I love that word, come to say they must take him to their mistress, whom we understand to be some fairy queen, though it is never explicitly stated. He goes, of course, because most boys will do anything they are told by pretty girls. Not complex creatures. The lady's tent is certainly a flash crib, priceless furniture, bed linens, and a conspicuous dearth of clothing. I love you, Lanval, she coos, promising him great success for his whole life. They make love, and then she issues her condition. Like Mrs. Robinson smoking her cigarette, the lady orders Lanval to never tell anyone of their love. Lanval agrees, because most boys will do anything for a pretty girl. They dine, and Lanval returns to court, he then starts mysteriously receiving some of the swankiest swag ever, wild luxuries. Of course, ostentatious wealth is a great provoker of popularity, and Lanval's social calendar swells. One day, when Lanval is playing with his new friends, Queen Guinevere decides to seduce Lanval. He immediately refuses, shocked at her disloyalty to the king. Pretty girl refused. Plot twist. Guinevere naturally decides he must be gay, accuses him of preferring boys, generally questioning his red-blooded manliness. I am not, Lanval vehemently retorts. In fact, my love is prettier than you. Her lowest serving wench is prettier than you. I can see him futilely clutching at the air, trying to get those words back. Guinevere, classic diva move, takes to bed ill, telling her husband that her honor must be avenged. Lanval returns to his chamber and tries to summon his lady, but in vain. Arthur then demands Lanval's explanation for his boorish behavior. Lanval refuses to contradict Guinevere. Quite understandably, Arthur's mind boggles, so he seeks counsel from his knights. The day of the trial arrives... Lanval appears again before Arthur and the barons who were to decide his fate. In the back of the room, several women appear on horseback, causing much uproar and consternation, heralding the arrival of their mistress, the fairy lady. She enters the courtroom, striking the assembly dumb with her elegance and beauty. She confirms Lanval's testimony, and the court finds for his innocence. The lady then takes him away to a beautiful island, and they are never heard from again. A number of things stand out to me in this story. 
One of the easiest to overlook is its depiction of nature. In Anglo-Saxon poetry, especially in the elegies, nature is gloomy and harsh, at best indifferent to human endeavor, and at times actively hostile. But in Marie's romance, nature is soft and pleasant and fertile. Lonval rests beside a gently running brook, his horse, quote, grazing on the sward. Marie invokes the fecundity of spring and its roses and lilies, hawthorn blossoms. Not a big deal, probably, but we've seen precious little spring and summer in the literature so far, and it's just nice to feel the sunshine again. Listen carefully for farting bucks. Also quite prominent is the social dynamic of the outsider, the other. Lonval is Breton, a foreigner, and he is poor, a landless son who has been in some ways thrust upon the court. Arthur lavishes patronage on all his knights, but ignores Lonval. Quote, him he forgot. His men disliked him too, the lot, were envious of his handsomeness, his strength, his courage, his largesse. From here on, Marie provides constant reminders of Lanval's outsider status. He is, quote, a foreigner filled with care and sadness in a distant land. He, quote, went to ride alone in the countryside. He sometimes, quote, goes off alone and turns aside from all the rest. A, quote, foreigner he felt chagrin since he had neither friend nor kin. All right, I reckon you get the point. But in a world constructed around male bonding and comradeship, that famous round table, Marie stresses Lonval's isolation. Yet, as any good storyteller would, she also makes him the normative center of such a world's ethic. She says of Lanval that he is, quote, the soul of courtesy. So, the outcast is actually the epitome of chivalry. Nice touch. I'm also struck by Marie's constant use of the language of exchange, of commerce and consumption. When Lanval and the lady consummate their love, followed by her warning never to speak of it, the words have an economic tenor. She, quote, bestowed on him her heart and her body every part. Her admonition, quote, you shall never again see me nor have my body in your fee. She speaks of lovers, quote, possessing each other. Common enough language, I suppose, in colloquial speech or even in drugstore bodice rippers. But here it feels as though Marie is setting up an analogy between sexual relations and commerce that goes to the heart of her critique of Anglo-Norman society. We'll get to that presently. But note also the detail she lavishes upon the descriptions of the ladies' pavilion and the fabrics and the foods. When first we meet her, her opulence and grace exceeds that of Queen Semiramis of ancient Assyria and Octavian the Emperor Augustus of Rome. When the lady reappears at the end during Lanval's trial, Marie goes to exceptional lengths to describe the ultimate accoutrement of the ultimate lady. Quote, A mantle was around her drawn, a cloak of deep-dyed purple lawn, a falcon on her wrist sat still, a greyhound followed her at will. Her cloak is purple. 
the color of royalty and power going back at least to the Roman emperors. The color was extraordinarily expensive to produce, and so reserved for those of the highest status. The falcon similarly signifies power and majesty. It is also, of course, fearsome. There is a a long and complex allegorical tradition that links the hunting dance between predator and prey with the sexual expression of love. The greyhound, in medieval heraldry, indicated courtly virtues of courage, vigilance, and loyalty, in curious contradistinction here to Guinevere's perjury. This all follows a rather lengthy re-description of the lady's physical beauty. Throughout the poem, the language of looking permeates to such a degree that it works with the language of commodity and exchange. To look at something is to possess it, or to be possessed by it. Upon their first encounter, we are told that the lady's loveliness, quote, transfixed Lanval's, quote, gaze. Remember, too, that the lady uses the verb to see when she warns Lanval to keep him up, quote, you shall never again see. Sight and possession and sexual congress are all implied here. Check the lady's entrance to court. Quote, in town was neither high nor low, old man or child, who did not go and line the streets along the way to watch as she made her And as they stood gazing at her, her beauty was no laughing matter. The judges, seeing her, were wholly astonished at that spectacle and held it for a miracle. And the lady's coup de grace before the enraptured court. Softly she let the mantle fall, the better to be seen by all. So on and so on and so on. Even when Guinevere decides to seduce Lanval, that too is visually stimulated. Quote, she gazed at Lanval and knew him well. Knew what? Uh, you. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors? and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels. Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram, at Happy Writer Podcast. No. I suppose it's easy here to think, well, isn't that typical? A woman's only social power or value is in her beauty and sexuality. We still live with it today. Photoshopped magazine models, TikTok influencers, a shocking rise in eating disorders, body image issues, the pornographication of interpersonal relationships. What's new? Indeed, I don't deny that much of the sexualizing power of the visual gaze exercises its influence here. But I also think that Marie de France employs these very old social truths in more complex and, dare I say it, disruptive ways. First, one should note that men are not the active agents in this tale. Surely they exercise military and political and judicial power, 
but they lack all psychological independence and ingenuity. They are nearly mindless drones working according to their programming. When Arthur is confronted with two differing versions of the tete-a-tete between his wife and Lanval, he becomes incapacitated and has to turn to his barons to sort the mess out. But the Lady and Guinevere choose to act, and do so for their own reasons and gratifications. The Lady seduces Lanval. She reverses the typical arrangement. So too does Guinevere, though unsuccessfully. Even the lady's attendants order the men about, summoning here and there. While the men have strength, they seem to me little better than beasts of burden. It's not so much that they wield power as that they merely produce it, and that power is consumed and exercised by the dominant women in the tale. Now, of course, that power, that agency is clearly sexualized. There's no escaping that. But I think Marie gives us a wink and a knowing nod here, too. Have you ever heard of Potiphar's wife from the book of Genesis in the Bible? Look it up sometime. Chapter 39, Genesis. It's a trashy little tale. Briefly, Joseph is a slave in the house of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Joseph, being a precocious young lad, gets himself made head of the household, and his youthful good looks catch the eye of Potiphar's wife. She tries to seduce him, he refuses, she cries rape, and Joseph ends up in prison. Don't worry, compassionate listener, things work out, but no spoilers here. Anyway, Marie takes that biblical story with her tongue planted firmly in her cheek as she sets up Guinevere, whom we think of as the archetype of the romantic courtly queen, and makes her basically a real housewife of Camelot. I know, I know, we don't have Camelot at this point in the literary history, but the joke doesn't work otherwise. So So yes, we do have the classic tropes of the sex-hungry housewife and the unimpeachably gorgeous fairy queen. We have the villainous, all be it comically, I think, in this case, and the authoritative. In fact, the whole plot of the piece reverses the typical damsel-in-distress story. Lanval is the damsel rescued by the lady. It's an elegant bit of narrative volte-face. But lest we think, on the other hand, that Marie errs on the other side of gender critique, we should also remember that though Lanval's lady is beautiful, authoritative, and generous, She also emasculates him, figuratively, of course. Her rescue effectively strips him of his knightliness, and combining that with Guinevere's accusations of homosexuality, we should be reminded of this society's anxiety about destabilized masculinity, of the kind that we saw in Monmouth and Laomon. It's always a mistake, I think for readers to project anachronistic cultural values on the literature of the past. It's difficult to avoid doing, surely, and I know I do it all the time. But we will always be disappointed if we seek to find in writers of the past heroic avatars of our modern political or social obsessions. Writers are not policymakers, Marie de France is not really a proto-feminist. Writers are artists who traffic in the ambiguities inherent in language and in life. 
and in that sense are more progressive and transcendental than any mere social program. What Marie does excellently well is use love and eroticism as the lens through which she examines the role of the individual in the larger society. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider supporting the show. Thanks very much for your time. I hope you feel it was well spent. I look forward to talking with you again next time. Till then, all the best. Oh, wait, wait, hang on. I forgot to tell you something. I got a little bonus addendum to our last episode about the Arthur of pseudo-history. As I was puddling around with some research, I came across a book that mentioned a really interesting fragment of text relating to Arthur's death. It's probably dated from before the year 1191, because it notes that Arthur's grave is in Gwyneth, not Glastonbury. Uh, The Glastonbury grave was discovered in 1191, so... That would place this text before then. And it's headlined, This is the True Story of Arthur's Death. It offers a really much more interesting account than Geoffrey of Monmouth's rather lackluster death scene that we mentioned last time. It then links to the chapter following Arthur's passing in The History of the Kings of Britain. It's a seamless link between the Arthur material and the next Uh, batch of stuff that Jeffrey's talking about. So it seems that someone, a cleric probably, inserted this bit of text because he was dissatisfied with the way Monmouth told the story. This text, uh, this fragment, contains the most bloody obvious Christian and biblical allusions. In this story, Arthur dies of a spear thrust by an unknown youth whose spear was anointed with a serpent's venom. Uh, He's then buried in a tomb As a powerful storm rises and then darkness settles across the land from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, it's kind of like the supposed eclipse at Jesus' crucifixion, Arthur's body, like the Virgin Mary's, is assumed into heaven, or maybe Avalon, or maybe when he died the tomb simply transmogrified into solid rock. Difficult to get folks here to agree on what actually happened. I quite enjoy the somewhat postmodern quandary of a text asserting itself as the truth and then going on to offer a multiplicity of explanations. Baudrillard and Leotard would be very, very proud of this writer. Be that as it may, what I really like is the idea of a random monk dropping in a bit of fan fiction in a book he thought needed a little bit of a boost. Now, at this early period... 12th century, we do not find anything like a proprietary or official version of the Arthur story, or any story, really, with the possible exception of the Bible. We'll talk about the vicissitudes of English biblical translations in future episodes. For now, stories never arrived at a fully formed and fixed shape in oral cultures. They were reinvented each time they were recited. Little details changed, little emendations, little bits of effect, trying to please an audience. There's no reason to believe that incipient literacy would behave any differently. Now we, after perhaps a millennium or more of anglophonic literate culture, we take as read that texts are fixed and stable phenomena. 
We assume that there is a correct version of Austin's Pride and Prejudice, and any variations are incorrect or faulty. Even in some non-literary areas, we are obsessed with what we call canon. That is, what belongs to the real story? The various iterations of storytelling that technology has availed to us allow for a rapidly expanding fictional universe. I'm thinking of the new television shows, movies, and video games connected to, say, the Star Wars universe or the Marvel Comics universe. Are all of those new things canon? That is, are they all belong to the, the same core story that George Lucas or Stan Lee uh, imagined at the beginning? Is every novelization of a Star Wars film, even if it deviates from the film, are they all canon? We have a keen sense of, or at least a keen desire to argue about, what belongs and what doesn't to the official version of events in a given story. The new show, based on Tolkien's Middle Earth, The Rings of Power, has exercised a number of critics and fans, debating how faithful it is to the author's original vision and whether or not this story has an equal status to, say, The Hobbit. Same thing with the Game of Thrones series, uh, when the TV show overran the novels, or the new spinoff, I suppose. Does the original author, George R.R. R. Martin, does he still have creative control over the storytelling universe he started? Anyway, I think I'm getting a little rabbit holy here, so I'll ballpark. There is no canon of Arthur legends. They are what we would now call crowdsourced. Medieval storytellers had no conception of intellectual property. An anonymous priest can just stick a page with his version of events into a manuscript about King Arthur's death, and no one argues its potential copyright infringement, no one cries plagiarism. In this world, this twilight between orality and literacy, there are no authors, only what we would now call content providers. Okay, you can go, middle.